Since I don't do this every week, I've taken to writing down on the tops of my notes <clears throat> the times that I uh, teach uh, these lessons at various places so that I can you know, keep track and if I want to pull one out uh, again to use. And uh, it turns out that exactly a year ago, on January 22nd, so it was this week's Sunday, uh, one year ago, I taught uh, a lesson about uh, Psalms, and it, I have a feeling since what's happening right now is that Steve and Janet are at the Ligonier Conference, I'm thinking that maybe that's exactly what they were doing one year ago today too, and that's why I taught this then. Um, and uh, I also happen to be preaching uh, the PM service this evening, and my text this evening is on Psalm 16. And there were some things about the psalm and psalms uh, that I had to uh, cut for time, so to speak, to the sermon. And so I said, oh, well, I'm also teaching Sunday school, so maybe I could do that. Uh, and so I'm going to pull out this lesson from a year ago. And if you were here one year ago and you remember it, I'm willing to let you test out. Okay, so here we go. Um, if you can define for me chiasm, and also name the titles of the five books of the Psalms. You can go grab yourself a donut and go just hang out in the kitchen for the hour, okay? Anybody want to take a shot? Uh, okay, that's fine, that's fine. All right, so let's do it, all right? So we're going to talk this morning about loving your Psalms, all right? Loving your Psalms. And I'm sure, I know that a lot of you were here last year, and that's great. So hopefully this will just be, as I'm talking, it'll just sort of bubble back into your short-term memory, and it'll be something that you can really uh, use and apply uh, when it comes to your uh, personal Bible study. So I titled this lesson, uh, Love Your Psalms, because that's the important message I want to for you to take away from today, not the love part, but the your part. They are your psalms. All right? The Bible, of course, is the word of God. It is God's message to us. And that is absolutely true of psalms, too. But psalms are unique and special in the canon in that they are the one book in which there is also us speaking to him. They're us speaking to him. And in a way that gives us kind of a very interesting special ownership, an unusual relationship that we have with Psalms compared to any other book in the Bible. John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of all parts of the soul. An anatomy of all parts of the soul. And up until the 19th Century, which is really not that long ago in the grand scope of things, uh, Psalms were the church's primary hymn book. The only thing they sang was Psalms. Uh, Athanasius said that they embraced the whole life of man, the affections of his mind, the motions of his soul. Luther described them, uh, this book as, in it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly. Everything that is in the entire Bible. So the deal, the thing is, is that the Psalms belong to the church and you are the church. These are your Psalms. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about the, some of the fundamentals when it comes to the Psalms, all right? Now, uh, Spurgeon, if any of you are familiar, Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms, anybody know what he, what it's titled? It's called The Treasury of David, right? It's called The Treasury of David. Uh, and that's a bit of a misconception because while David certainly wrote a lot of Psalms, he's not the sole author, right? Not the sole author. Uh, Jewish tradition counts at least 10, 10 different authors. Are you ready? Adam, Melchizedek, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Haman, Jedison, Asaph, and at least one son of Korah. Okay, so there's the 10. Now, of those 10, I can be definitive about seven. Seven of those in particular. Why can I be absolutely definitive about seven? Because the name's where? In the beginning, right? In the title. Right? In the title. Psalms, another part that's unique about Psalms is it's the only place where there's like uh, extra versical, I just coined that phrase, content. <laughs> All right? Uh, because the titles, they don't get a verse number. They're just right underneath the heading. And everywhere else in your Bible where you might see headings in your Bible, those headings are not inspired. Those headings were put in there by the Bible publisher or by the translators. Uh, but the Psalms, they have a title, or a lot of them do, have a title, and that title is inspired. It is in the original Hebrew text. And so when it says a mictum of David or a song of David or a song of Moses, uh, we can be sure that Moses, David, whoever wrote that. All right, so there is at least that. And the reason I say at least seven is because Asaph and Korah, which I'll talk about in a moment here, uh, seem to be not just the name of a singular person, but rather a group of people. And so it's possible that there were multiple people within the group who wrote and contributed to some of these psalms. But there's at least seven. Um, of the ten that I just listed from Jewish tradition, uh, Adam, Melchizedek, and Abraham, they don't, there is no psalm that is attributed to them in the inspired text. So that's pure tradition that those three wrote one or more than one. All right, um, so uh, you know who Moses is. I'll tell you a little bit about authorship, the biographies of these authors. You know who Moses is. Moses only has one credit to his name, Psalm 90. Uh, Solomon, you know who Solomon is, of course. He has two, Psalm 72, Psalm 127. Uh, and then there's the sons of Korah. All right, now the sons of Korah, like I just said, they're, uh, they're a group of people. Um, they have their roots in, believe it or not, in numbers in the story of a rebellion that takes place in the Israelite camp against Moses. And that rebellion is led by none other than Korah. So you'd be kind of surprised. You're forgiven, I suppose, if you're surprised that there would then be a group of people who name themselves the sons of Korah and end up writing parts of the Bible if Korah led a rebellion against Moses. But it it does seem to be that, that the sons of Korah did not participate in their father's rebellion. They remained loyal to Moses. Um, and by the time of David, this group, this family clan, seems to have become, have a special charge of music at the temple. They were, to put it in modern terms, David's worship team. Uh, they were Charlie Crane, right? 
Um, and uh, they seem to have, in fact, continued in that role for several generations beyond David. All right. So, like I said, where the name, uh, very possibly, a lot of commentators think that the name doesn't even refer to a family anymore, but is, in fact, more just like an organization or a band name. <laughs> right? Just, hey, we're the sons of Korah. <laughs> right? Um, Asaph, who is the author of 12 psalms, he was a contemporary of David. He was uh, named in First Chronicles as the chief minister before the ark. That's his title, which probably means uh, that he was a skilled singer and a poet, uh, as well as a prophet. And again, in later generations beyond David, there seems to be a group that starts to name themselves Asaph or the sons of Asaph. Um, and so we can't really say that all 12 were written by David's contemporary in particular. It might be that some of them came by some followers later on. Haman and Ethan the Ezraites, uh, they are credited with only one psalm each. But I want to uh, please note that when you look in the inspired title, it says, you know, Haman the Ezraite and Ethan the Ezraite. Uh, please note that it's not, uh, they're not descended from the famous Ezra, okay, uh, that you know in the Bible, but rather from Ezra with an H, okay, who is a completely different person. Um, and yet again, that just seems to be another choir group. Uh, in fact, Psalm 89, which is one of the ones credited to them, uh, sounds very post-exile, so it, uh, there's content in it that probably came from much, much later on uh, in the history of Israel. And then, of course, David, the big gun, he has 73 of the 150 psalms to his credit, not quite half, just under half. And the remaining 50 are anonymous. They're anonymous. We just don't know. Now, because they are all songs, and it's very important for you to remember that as you read psalms, you can sometimes kind of lose that fact because in English, when they're translated, they don't rhyme. They don't really have, some of them have choruses that repeat, but not all of them. And so they, they don't really look like a song as you know songs, but they are all songs. Uh, and, uh, and they are all poetry because they're songs. They are all poetry. That's really important to understand. The thing, though, about Hebrew is that even in Hebrew, poetry doesn't rhyme or at least doesn't necessarily rhyme. There's probably a handful of psalms that do have some rhyming or at least some play on words in the original Hebrew. But poetry in Hebrew was not organized around rhyming. Rather, it was organized around chiasm. Okay, chiasm, that word phrase I mentioned earlier. Chiasm is uh, what happens uh, when something patterns around a central point. Okay, it patterns around a central point. And so for most psalms, what you can expect that to mean is that the message, the theme, the big takeaway of the psalm is somewhere in the middle. Somewhere in the middle. Some psalms, there's actually like multiple chiasms where it's like each stanza has its own. Uh, most or lots of psalms, it's just that there's a whole V-shaped kind of thing going on uh, where in the, in the almost smack middle of the psalm, is the, the climax or the, the most important uh, thing that you're supposed to know from the psalm. Um, whereas in English poetry, you know, the main message is, is usually uh, in the first or the last line or repeated in both places. 
There are some psalms that are not chiasms at all. They are acrostics. Uh, does anybody know the most sort of famous one of that? Psalm 119 is an acrostic. Yes. Uh, so that one, the longest chapter in the Bible, it's kind of even a misnomer to call it a chapter, but it's the longest one in the Bible. Uh, that is a giant acrostic. Uh, each section of Psalm 119 is labeled with a heading of a different Hebrew letter. And in within that section, every single line in the Hebrew starts with that letter. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. So it's and and I look at that and I think to myself of how we do that similar kind of thing uh, with our children's Sunday school. And I can't help but wonder if Psalm 119 was originally written in sort of like a children's catechism kind of way, because it's all about Psalm 119 is all about how wonderful the scriptures are. Every single line in Psalm 1, for as long as it is, every single one of them says something about how great your law is, your scriptures are, your commandments are, and like it changes the, all the different terms for it, but it's just over and over again about how wonderful the Bible is. And I'm like, yeah, I have my kids sing songs about how great the Bible is too in, in uh, children's Sunday school, so I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, all right, now, most modern Bibles... Uh, with our fancy publishing technology, print psalms with special indentation, right, to indicate their poetic structure. However, if you're like me uh, and your brain tries to follow the lines and whatever, it can get really hard, especially in those Bibles that are printed in two-column formats. So, uh, first off, I'll just say before I get into this, if you ever have the opportunity to buy a copy of the Psalms as a sort of standalone thing, like a scripture journal or something else where it's one column, okay, single column format, nicely wide margined, but, but big and spacious. Definitely get that. That's fantastic. Even better if, and there's, this is starting to become a thing now, they call them like reader's Bibles where they don't even print the verse numbers in them because the verse numbers aren't matching with the actual verses, of the psalm. And so when you take away all those numbers and everything and you just see in one nice single column the indentations correctly and the spacing correctly, I think you really get a better grasp of the poetic structure of the psalm. But I do want to help you. Most of us probably have the two column one. So I'd like you to turn to Psalm 104, but I want you to do it in your pew Bibles. All right? That way we're all looking at exactly the same thing. So grab a pew Bible and turn to Psalm 104. So let me try to explain the indentation to you, all right? Here's the key, the map legend, all right, so you can understand what's going on. All right, first off, look between verses 9 and 10, verses 13 and 14, verses 18 and 19, verses 26 and 27, right? Do you see how there's sort of an extra line of space there, okay? Those are the stanza breaks, okay? Those are the stanza breaks, so each, uh, so when you count that up, what is that? Psalm 104, well, one, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, so there's six stanzas in Psalm 104. All right? Uh, then if you sort of, if you have another piece of paper or you just want to kind of put your hand like that vertical across the page, you'll notice that there's actually multiple levels of indent. Okay, multiple levels of indent. First, there's sort of the level zero. Right, everything that's as far over to the left as you can, um, and then 
level one, so one tab over. Okay? If you see something in indent level one, that indicates a couplet. So, for example, verse four. All right, so if you look at verse four, there's he makes his messengers winds his ministers a flaming fire. Right? So the, the second part of verse four is just one level indent in. Do you see that? Okay. So that indicates that those two lines, right, those are two lines in the Hebrew poetry, but those two lines are a couplet. Okay, they go together. There are also in somewhere other places in Psalms, like Psalm 16 that I'm going to preach tonight, triplets. Okay, so it's not just couplets, sometimes it's triplets. Um, but they are, so they're meant to be read together, right, as a pairing. Definitely don't ever want to just take out of context one half of that and not the other, <laughs> right? So um, you, get, you get the whole couplet, all right? And also, most times those couplets have some kind of parallelism, some kind of relationship, right? And here it's pretty obvious. He makes his messengers wins, his ministers a flaming fire, right? It's the, mess- the subject is really the same. Ministers, messengers, it's the same person, the same uh, or same group of people, just describing them with a different word and in a slightly different way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Two different ways, right. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then indent level two, so when it's indented even further over, what that's telling you is uh, just column wrapping. All right? Word wrap. Uh, the line above was too long to fit on one line, right? And that happens all the time in these two-column formats. And you can see it's all over the place in Psalm 104. Uh, so, like, for example, verse 11. They give drink to every beast of the field, right? Field is way over indented. You can see it because uh, the next line below it, couplet, is there's a couplet there indented, right? So, in verse 11, there are, in fact, two lines in the Hebrew, one that starts with they, one that starts with the, right? And the field is not any kind of separate line or anything else. It just didn't fit when they were trying to print it here in this, this shrunk down two column format, all right? So what that means is if you're reading this psalm aloud, all right, be careful. Please do not pause at all between the and field, all right? You should just read it like they give drink to every beast of the field, right? Okay. Um, and then, so well, how you can think about it, if you're reading Psalms aloud, and I encourage you, read Psalms aloud a lot. They're a wonderful way to have worship with your family or personal worship. Um, and you think about it this way, that on the spaces between the stanzas, big pause. All right, that's when you would take a really big pause, a rest. Take, if you think about it in musical terms, and you think about it, and it's meant to be a, like, you know, you reflect, you're about to cycle over to the next stanza, the next verse. Um, in Psalm 42, there's actually a chorus where some that gets repeated, a certain set of lines, and you'll see the chorus in multiple places, just like we have choruses in our, in our modern worship songs, right? Um, and then um, on indent level one, those couplets, you can think about just as you're reading aloud, you just take a breath between the couplet. And then on the level two, the big indents, no stop at all. All right? So spaces, stanzas, big breath, couplets, little breath. <laughs> level two, no breath. <laughs> Just keep going. Okay? And 
Uh, it's not in Psalm 104, but in other psalms, there is a musical term that is printed, uh, usually on the bottom right, kind of justified over to the right side of the column, and that musical term is selah, selah, okay, S-E-L-A-H. It is a musical term that we don't know for certain, but it seems extremely likely that it means rest, pause, breath, okay? And so it's just an instruction, all right? Those of you who can read music and, you've, and you see musical uh, uh, you know, notations and whatnot, um, it would be, it's similar to how there's pianissimo, right, that just tells you uh, very softly, right, or, or piano, it just means somewhat softly, right, that kind of thing. In the same way, cella is just telling you, pause here, pause for reflection, all right? What that means is, again, if you're reading them aloud, don't read it aloud, okay? It's kind of a bit of a pet peeve of mine, but you're not supposed to say it. You're not supposed to read it. It's supposed to be silence. That's a moment of silence, for time to, re- for the whole congregation who was singing to reflect. Probably made, maybe it was a moment at which like a whole line of uh, instrument music just kept playing while the, while the singers just didn't sing. Okay, so it's just a moment, it's supposed to be a, an extended moment of reflection before you move on through with the rest of the psalm. Okay, alright, so there you go. So that's the indentations and the, and the musical notations. Um, if you ever also in them titles see some weird words that you don't know, uh, for example, again, tonight, Psalm 16, a mictum of David. Again, that's just, it's a musical term that we, the uh, translators, just don't quite know, so they just transliterate it from the Hebrew. It probably means some type of song, like a genre of song to be sung. Maybe it even indicates the particular tune that uh, the instruments are supposed to play as you sing this song. We don't really know. Right, but we know it's some kind of musical term. I uh, just that what I'm just saying that that it, it that it's it is a musical term. It means um, I think most I think most Jewish tradition says that it refers to the, like the tune, like this this is the the melody that's supposed to go with this. So verse three, yeah. So he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters is one line and it's not a couplet. It's all on its it stands completely on its own. He makes the clouds his chariot, he rides on the wings of the wind. That's a couplet. Uh well the two lines together are a, are a couplet with each other. So there's so there's so within verse 3, what we label as verse 3, there are actually three lines of Hebrew poetry. Okay? One of which stands on its own completely and the second two, lines B and C are a couplet. Okay? And if you really want to get into it, like if you're the, your inner English teacher uh, gets into this, there is a, there can, there is a lot to be found uh, in a lot of psalms when it comes to discovering exactly that, right? Like, oh, it goes A, B, C, A, B, C, right? Um, or B, C, B, C, A, B, C, right? Like it's, it's all that kind of stuff. So, And uh, then... Um, as you, if you, when you really study those kinds of things in depth, you'll be able to spot, for example, that like, oh, in line, the line I labeled A way back here in stanza one, that in stanza six, there's another line A, and those two lines actually have some parallel to each other in terms of 
the metaphor they're using or they just they picked out a certain Hebrew word that appears in both. And you just you really start to see all the like I said, Hebrew poetry is all just about the repetition. And it's not rhyming like we think of, you know, audible rhyming, but rather it's the, the repetitive and the parallelism that makes it into rhyming. Okay. And Psalm 16, it's a bit of a plug for my uh, sermon tonight, but Psalm 16 is full of that. And we're going to, I'm, I'm going to show you at least a few places uh, where, where it all comes out. And that really helps to tie together the whole theme of the psalm as you study it. Okay. All right. Um, now, as I also mentioned a minute ago, there are with it, the Psalms is not actually just the book of Psalms. Okay. It's not one book. It's really five books. Do you know that? Five books. Some really old printings of Bibles uh, even went so even went so far as to say Psalms one or first Psalm, second Psalm, third Psalm, or book one of the Psalms kind of thing. Um, and I think in the ESV, if you search through there and flip around, you'll see it says book four, right? Like as a heading somewhere in there. Um, Interestingly, uh, so the, the other, the alternative word or uh, title for the Hebrew name of the entire collection of the Psalms is the Book of Praises. Okay, the Book of Praises. And each one of these five books uh, ends with a verse or a psalm of praise. So I think it's kind of interesting, a little neat. Um, but those five books, they do hint at at least a bit more of organization. Sometimes if you sort of scan through the Psalms, you might have thought to yourself that they're, they seem kind of random. You know, if you didn't take enough time to really look at it, they seem kind of random to you in terms of their order and placement. The David Psalms are all over the place. It's not just like there's a section in which we just rattle through all 73 of David's Psalms and then move on to somebody else. No, they're, they're kind of all over, right? Even, even the Psalms of David, which... Um, Many of them refer to specific times in David's life, right? Actually, in the titles, talk to us about, or within the text, we can glean from the context uh, what part of David's life, what, it, what era he, he wrote this in. They're not in chronological order of his life, right? They're kind of mixed up and all over the place. So what, what is going on? What is the ordering going on here? Well, <clears throat> uh, there are five books like I said, and uh, I'm going to give you uh, my titles for them, all right? And I stand in a tradition of many commentators in that it feels seems like every single commentator I read had invented their own names, okay? There's been no consensus <laughs> about what the names of these books should be. Um, but I've looked at them a lot, and, and these are my titles that I, 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 I like for them, and I'll tell you why after I get through them. Uh, book 1, which is Psalms 1 through 41, is facing down the enemy's external. Facing down the enemy's external. And then book 2, which is 42 to 72, is facing down the enemy's internal. Facing down the enemy's internal. Book 3, 73 to 89, is about getting real during crises of faith. And book four, which is 90 through 106, is remembering God is faithful. And then book five, 
107 to 150 is celebrating God for who he is and what he has done. All right. Facing down the enemy's external, facing down the enemy's internal, getting real in crises of faith and then remembering God is faithful and celebrating God for who he is and what he has done. So those are in those were the original how the scrolls were in Hebrew, like when they when they organized the Psalms, that was each one of the scrolls. Yep. So they they've always been for as far back as we have manuscripts divided up into these five books. So we we didn't just invent where we want to break it up. Um, Now, I find extra special meaning in the way I've titled these because there is a strong correlation with the typical progression of the lament psalm. Okay, the lament psalm. And I'll get into types in a few minutes. But laments is one type. And as you can probably guess from the name, uh, it is a song about when the author is facing some kind of emotional distress or struggle. Okay, he is lamenting over something. And nearly all of the lament psalms have the shape of a V in terms of their author's emotional state. Okay, as you read through it, they start with a statement of a situation outside of them, an enemy external, that has triggered the distress, caused the problem. Okay? And they proceed then to confess their emotions about it and deal with their own sort of internal enemies, and as it reaches the bottom of the V, they have gotten to a point where uh, it brings out of them cries of despair in the crisis, okay? And then there's like a turning point in the middle of that lament psalm, where all of a sudden it's like some, the switch inside them flips, the Holy Spirit brings to mind again something, some truth about God, some wonderful promise that Yahweh has made to them personally or to the nation, and that starts to bring them up out of their despair, and they start to remember that God is faithful, right, where they start, and they start to look up to God instead of looking down at their troubles, and by the end of the psalm, every one of these lament psalms except for one, Psalm 88, but for every other ones, uh, they all end by the end of the psalm. They are celebrating God and they're shouting hallelujah. Okay. And so in that exact same way, so what you want might once have thought was randomness when it comes to uh, the books of the Bible or the books of the Psalms. They follow that same V pattern. It's not completely true within the books. There are some that kind of don't fit within that theme. But by and large, book one, you're going to see mostly about, and it's mostly Davidic Psalms there too, David talking about fighting against his external enemies who are causing him distress and giving him trouble. (laughs) And then book two starts with Psalm 42, one of the greatest Psalms uh, dealing with despair, with thwarted plans, uh, with depression, 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has an entire book called Spiritual Dis- Depression in which he goes, uses Psalm 42 for most of the, of the book to go through and explain everything. Is, you know, it's about facing down the enemy's internal, right? When your emotions start to get the best of you. And then ver- book three tends to be the most lament, strongest laments of the lament psalms in which they are just in utter despair over how bad things are, whether utter despair over uh, enemies attacking Israel during the kingdom era, or the, a lot of those are also, of course, during the exile or just after the exile. They're lamenting the fact that they're in exile. Uh, and then, book four, now you start to see more celebratory psalms. Right, Psalm 103 is within Book 4, in which we talk about how wonderful God God is my Father. As God, as a father pities his children, so does God love those who are His. Right, and by Book 5, most of the Psalms in Book 5 are just short little, just like our hymn book, are short little choruses, in which they just sing Hallelujah, (laughs) and they're just celebrating. How good and good and great God is. All right, so there's the structure. And so, you know, what the Psalms tell us, I think, this this structure is the indication of what kind of instruction we should take from the Psalms. Okay? I told you, this is the book that God gave us for us to be able to speak back to Him. First off, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that we are emotional creatures and that's okay. Not to be too Mr. Rogers on you. But we are emotional creatures, and that's okay. And in fact, it's more than okay. It is good. Adam and Eve, before the fall, were created with emotional capacity. We are built to be emotional creatures. We don't sin just because we emote. It is what we do with those emotions that becomes a statement of, sinfulness or obedience how we react how we process them how we deal with them and so many of the psalms are literally a roadmap for you on how to process your emotions in a godly way and so it should be no surprise god knows those our emotions and he knows our hearts he knows them better than we know them even which means it does no use for us to hide that from him when we are experiencing any range of emotions. And one of the things that really strikes me, the more I study the Psalms, is how incredibly bluntly honest the psalmists are with God about what they're going through and how they feel. Like, to the point where it almost sounds blasphemous. They're like, where are you, God? How long will you hide your face from me? I'm like, how, when are we going to sing? Ask Charlie, when are we going to sing that song? <laughs> yeah, be not deaf to me. Right? It's not really a thing you're going to hear on any given Sunday morning. Maybe we should. Because that's really real. That's really what's going on for a lot of us. Right? Um, and then the Psalms... So, like I just said, serve as a guidebook on how to process these emotions. 
that we experience in this sin-cursed world with our fallen nature, how to rightly deal with them, how to live with them. And most especially, I think, the Psalms tell us that we are not alone. We are not alone. Because I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that, you know, as Luther said, that the Psalms are a comprehensive look at our emotional states, which means that anything that you're going through, there is something analogous to it in the Psalms that you can use, that God has given you to help you. Okay? And also, just to not sound too downer about this, it's not just negative emotions that the Psalms tell us how to process. There's also talking about happy emotions, joy and celebration, how to praise God. So in all that, I'll only offer you two approaches. One is if you're already in the midst of an emotional experience, find a Psalm and use it to deepen your relationship with God. All right. Now, this might be hard to do in a moment of negative emotions, but it can be a real lifeline, a real lifeline to stick to. So, of course, that does mean it's better to be meditating and consuming the Psalms already before you get into those hard times so that you know where to turn already. Uh, but there are there are many psalms in my Bible that are well-worn paths, right? That my my Bible my Bible just sort of you know you open it up and it just sort of falls open to that page. And so that's the second approach, the one where you love your psalms, and so that's sort of reinforcing the girders inside your mind and your heart. So and your soul, so that you're better prepared for both the trials and the triumphs of life. And in the same way, if something amazing happens or wonderful happens, be ready to turn to a psalm and to read it or read it aloud uh, in celebration, in praise to the Lord for what's happening or what he's doing. So just for some examples, I already mentioned it. Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is an excellent psalm for you if you've had a good plan thwarted. What seemed like the wise decision, the right course of action, and then some circumstance outside of your control has completely ruined it? Psalm 42. Psalm 74 is a great one to turn to in an election year. When you're anxious about the news and what's going on around you that you have no control over, and it just seems like the world is spinning right off its axis. Psalm 74. And then on the positive side, if you're getting ready to celebrate a holiday with a family gathering, um, Psalm 113. Take a look at Psalm 113. Maybe read that at the start of your, once everyone's come together before you pray for the meal or whatever. Now, if you're going to go searching, I don't have a whole lot of time, but if you're going to go searching around the Psalms for one to fit the current occasion of your life, it's definitely helpful to have a map. And um, most time when you hear people talk about maps, they're talking about the, not talking about the five books that I just went to. They're talking about types. All right. Now, here's the thing about types. All right. I really feel like way too much ink has been spilled arguing over whether a certain psalm belongs to one type or the other. 
All right. I, in fact, am willing to uh, concede that a, any given psalm can be more than one type. And it's silly to argue. It's like, oh, I don't know, it's kind of messianic, but it's also kind of a Thanksgiving. Song. Okay, fine. It's both. <laughs> right. Just let it drop it. It's great. Give me both. All right. There's even been, of course, a whole lot of argument over what are the types. But here we go. Here's the Corey list of types. And you can watch the recording later if you want to take get the notes. Uh, lament. We've already covered lament psalms. So you know what those are. Uh, number two are repentance psalms. Anybody know the most famous repentance psalm? 51. That is correct. Right. Which is uh, David's repentance psalm over his sin with Bathsheba. There's also uh, Psalm 38 is another classic repentance psalm. Uh, there are creation psalms, which are singing about God as the creator, praising him for uh, the amazingness of creation, like Psalm 104. No surprise, there are thanksgiving psalms, although surprisingly, not so many that are actually titled a psalm of thanksgiving. There's only one of those. Uh, that's Psalm 107, but there's plenty of them that are about giving thanks. Uh Here's another type. It's always uh, a crowd favorite. The imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalms. Anybody have a definition for imprecatory? Kill your enemies. enemies. Well, that's that's the short, short version. (laughs) Bomb, did you have? Do you have have a definition for what imprecatory means? Complaint. Complaint, yeah. Yeah, it's not exactly lament, right? Uh, It's it's more... uh, you're, you're, you are filing a complaint with God about your enemies. Biblical ranting. That's another good way to put it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, like I was saying earlier, these are inspired. So this is, however they're doing it, is the proper biblical way to do it. It is not a license for you to just go ahead and complain and rant. <laughs> But rather, but rather, maybe it's a good for you to study, if you're prone to that kind of thing, maybe study some imprecatory psalms like Psalm 69 and get a better handle on how uh, they uh, file those complaints with the Lord. All right. Uh, there's the wisdom psalms, right, which are a bit like proverb-type psalms, like Psalm 1. And then finally, we have the praise psalms, which have their own special Hebrew word, the Hallel psalms hallel right that's where by the way if you didn't know hallelujah comes from all right hallel yah praise the lord right everywhere where you see hallelujah in your bible it's just because for whatever reason on that one they've decided to transliterate it to hallelujah instead of translating it praise the lord but whatever that's what it is (laughs) okay so if you see praise the lord anywhere in uh, your psalms, that's in, in the Hebrew, uh, congratulations, you, you can uh, uh, untranslate it back. You'll know, oh, that, that said hallelujah there. All right, so that's the Hallel psalms. Now, on top of all that, there are probably what I'm going to call three supertypes. Okay, they're supertypes, and these are more like currents running across the psalms. Okay, and I just need to finish with this because Psalm 16 is one of those. And the supertypes, there are three. One is individual, okay, that uh, within all those other types, there's the idea that, or across those other types, some of the psalms are specifically about me, 
right? The psalmist. My trials, my struggles, uh, my praises, my life, my sickness, right? It's, it's, it's very individual, okay? Uh, yet more psalms, again, across all these other types, are about, they're looking at Israel as a kingdom or the community of the church or, like, of all believers, and so it's sort of a community-based type of thing, okay? It's a song about the whole community, lamenting for the community, celebrating for the community, etc. And finally, then, the third supertype is Messianic, the Messianic Psalms, which are Psalms, of course, that prophesize or somehow speak of the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. Now, interestingly, this might be the most controversial of types and supertypes amongst commentators. Not that it's controversial that some Psalms talk about Jesus, that, everybody agrees on that. Okay? Every Christian commentator agrees on that. Um, but rather, it's which ones do and how many do. Right? Would you be interested to know that John Calvin argued that every single psalm is messianic? All 150. He's like, yep, type messianic. Done. <laughs> Going home for dinner. <laughs> Every single one. Um, I don't agree with Calvin on that. All right? But I do side with the reason I put Messianic in a supertype instead of just a single type. Right? There, there are the, 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 most, the strictest commentators. They put it in the list with Lament and, and Hallel and all that stuff. And then they're like, okay, so some it's just that they're Messianic, strictly Messianic, nothing else. Right? But I don't think that's true. I think there are Lament psalms that also have Messianic elements to them. I think there are... Praise psalms that have messianic elements to them. Some psalms, just one small part of the psalm, maybe one stanza or one couplet, is messianic. Other psalms surprise us in that they don't even really sound messianic all at first, but then we read the New Testament and it tells us that they are completely, that the entire psalm is messianic. All right? Spoiler alert for tonight, Psalm 16 is one such one, where Peter takes Psalm 16 in Acts, in his Pentecost sermon in Acts, and he quotes a few lines from it, but then as he comments on it, he makes it clear that the entire Psalm 16 is messianic. Now, if you're reading just the Old Testament... Without the light of the New Testament, you'd look at it and you would be like, I don't, you wouldn't necessarily see it. But with the interpretation of the New Testament, you can look back and say, you sort of read backwards in your Bible, and now you can see how the entire psalm refers to or is Jesus speaking or uh, is a prophecy of his life or his crucifixion, whatever, right? All all sorts of different things. Um, Another great example of this is Psalm 102, which is used by the uh, writer of Hebrews, he quotes it in Hebrews 1 and then again in Hebrews 13. And he reveals in that that suddenly what Psalm 102, where it just looks like the psalmist uh, lamenting about some terrible things in his life or that his enemies are attacking him. And Hebrews turns you around and says, no, no, this is Jesus in a lament prayer to the Father, praying about how he is being attacked and assaulted by his enemies, 
And the very end of Psalm 102 is actually the father's reply, because Hebrew says, you know, quotes some lines from the psalm and says, the father said to the son. And you see now that the end of Psalm 102 is the reply of the father back to the son, sort of answering his prayer. Promising him that despite what the suffering that he's going through now, that someday he's going to rule and reign forever. He's going to be, he, all these enemies are going to be made his footstool. All right. All right, so there you go. So we're a little bit over time, but I, all this, I hope, um, it's not making you feel more intimidated about getting into Psalms, but rather uh, that it's equipping you with these things just so that this knowledge may help you to be more confident in launching into your own exploration. All right, because here, let's, let's think about what we know now. All right, what you know now is that the Psalms aren't just some random assortment, that there actually is a structure to them. You know that uh, the inspired titles and the authors will give you clues about context for the Psalm. You know now that the Psalms were written from the hearts of the psalmists to express and process their emotions, both negative and positive. And you know that the Psalms are meant to be sung and prayed and response to God across all situations of life. All right? So read them often. Read them with heart. And if you can, and you look through them, I definitely highly recommend you try to find musical renditions of them that will help you to memorize them. Because after all, this is the authorial intent. (laughs) That they be sung. And while uh, we didn't have music, the actual musical melodies recorded for us uh, in the Bible, the, there's lots of artists, especially it's been sort of like a, a reawakening uh, uh, of this in, in recent uh, years in which uh, modern worship artists are like a, a big giant movement to try to put more and more of the Psalms back to music and, and just editing the text lightly to, to make it work uh, with uh, our modern uh, musical sort of theming and whatnot, but there's a lot of fantastic uh, artists out there. Poor Bishop Hooper, Shane and Shane uh, come to mind. Uh, Andrew Peterson has done some great treatments of psalms as well. So uh, if you can find good ones out there, highly recommend it. Okay? All right. Let's uh, close in prayer then. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the psalms. What a testament it is to the sufficiency of the Bible that not only uh, does the Bible tell us, give us all we need to know about you and all we need to know about your son, Jesus, and all we need to know about salvation, uh, but you've also given us a book in which uh, a collection of songs in which we can use to rightly talk back to you. And so, Lord, I pray that for everyone uh, in our congregation that we would be able to um, Better use these psalms, Lord, as we uh, go through the trials and the joys of life uh, and uh, use them uh, to, so that our tongues might properly give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.